0: Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, my daily routine when I get just some down moments is this. I I go to uh, the New York Times Wordle, and and I solve the Wordle for the day. I've only missed twice in the whole times I've done it. Then I go play another game. Uh, It's a geography game called Global, and, and I've gotten that every time. Then, of course, I look to see what's going on with uh, Aaron Rodgers in the Packer articles. <laughs> and then after that, I look at the world news. And always, as I, as I process the world news, I look to see what's going on in Ukraine. Now, ever since that war began, it has been uh, a war that's concerned me. There's, there's other global conflicts, of course. But this one, because of its potential to become a nuclear conflict, is something that, that holds my attention. And, and I would be like everybody else when it first began. I thought it was going to be really quick. I thought Russia would just sweep through. And now we'd be dealing with what's next on Putin's agenda. But it hasn't been that way. Putin thought he would win right away. Uh, he did not correctly estimate the degree of fight that is in the Ukrainian nation. And once they got armed, just how poorly his own troops would, would fight. And on paper, it was, it still is. A mismatched battle. Well, today, I want to talk about two, in their way, mismatched battles. They are actually a war, one war within the other. They are far more relevant than Ukrainian war. In fact, you could almost say that that war is a battle within these wars. It is a struggle between good and evil. It is what is going on in the gospel lesson. And we need to understand it as such because it absolutely impacts our existence. It absolutely impacts our eternity. And it impacts your purpose right now. So let's start with the struggle between Jesus and, and Satan. What kind of fight is this? Anyway, it's a fight between a what and a what. Well, to the best of our knowledge, it seems like Satan is what's called a cherubim or a seraphim, depending on where you go in the Bible. That is the best guess as to what he is. What can that kind of thing do? You know, there's not a really good list. The best you got is sort of looking over his shoulder in the book of Job. In the book of Job, Satan is able to give Job a very serious disease, so he's got the power to create illness. He has the power to make a wind come up and knock over a structure that kills Job's family. So he has some sort of impact, I don't know how big of an impact, on on the weather. But what always has seemed to be his biggest impact is his ability to get inside of people's heads to convince them to do something, to corrupt their thinking, and to bring them over to his point of mind. He does that with Eve from the very beginning. He does that with people in the story of Job. He does that every time he comes to the surface, it seems. And it would remain his biggest ability. Now, you would say, okay, he's up against Jesus. That's the Son of God. I mean, he created the universe. Look how vast, look how powerful that the universe is. And Jesus spoke it into existence. This should be like a giant squishing an ant. But we're talking about the Son of God incarnate, taking on human flesh. And that clearly has some limiting factors to what he's able to do. And then the whole conflict is somehow governed by a whole bunch of laws that you can kind of infer, but you don't know what they are. So this battle, which on paper would seem to be Wildly mismatched, maybe isn't as mismatched as you think, and yet the outcome turns out the way you would think. So Satan gives it his try. The other thing that is curious about this is, why doesn't like Jesus sleep up the night before and maybe eat a lot of carbs and, you know, come out fully ready to fight the next day? Instead, he's led into the desert, which I would say is a disagreeable place. He is led to fast 40 days and 40 nights. So physically, he's in a weak, weak condition. Why? And I don't think this is Jesus' choice. In fact, I... I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of conversation that went on between Satan and God that was very much like the conversation between Satan and God in the story of Job. Satan argues with God. Job only obeys you because you put a hedge around him. You give him everything he wants. Take away those things and he'll curse you to your face. So can you see Satan saying, you think that your son... Can fulfill the law for a person, for humans. Make him now that he's human. Make him super hungry. Make him super weak. See if he actually keeps the law. You can kind of see, hear God saying, "All right, it's on." And on it was. So if you're Satan, how do you attack Jesus? Now this isn't like a fisticuffs, it's not wrestling, it's not thunderbolts from your fingertips, it is though how these battles are fought at the level of God. It is temptation. It is using the law as, as leverage. And so Satan comes to Jesus first after his physical needs, the obvious choice when somebody's been fasting for 40 days, and says, turn this law, turn turn these rocks into bread. Now, can you point to any commandment in the Bible that says, thou shalt not make bread out of rocks? I always think that's probably a good idea as a rule of thumb, <laughs> but, but what is the commandment? And it takes us all the way back to, well, what is sin, really? Is it just breaking the Ten Commandments? Or or could it be defined more broadly as, you shall not do anything that comes from the rebellion against God, that comes from Satan himself. You shall only do what God wants, and in that case, Making bread out of rocks is not okay so Jesus is hungry certainly he can use bread Jesus though defends that attack by simply saying you must also live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God so Satan knows okay he's on to me I'm not going to get him here but maybe I can challenge God's word and that's really where he goes next takes him to the temple and actually quotes the Psalms and and does so accurately and says, look, God says that he he will catch you if you throw yourself off of this building or, or do something else. He will not let your foot be dashed against stone. And Jesus basically says, God's word is true. But this is not a pretext for you testing God. It's, it's a statement. It's a promise that God will watch out for you. So don't test the Lord your God. Round two. Done. And then, you know, it's strange. Satan says that the world has been given to him. And, and it kind of has. It's been given to him in this way. Just because of the one mess up of Adam and Eve, human beings, which were set up to really interact mentally with God and to understand God fully, now have had that taken away so they can't do it at all. And now Satan has the free access to the brain of every person. So he says, All these nations have been given to me, I'll give it back. Just bow down and worship me. Giving Jesus a shortcut to what is the end goal. But Jesus doesn't go for that. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. And then it says that Satan departs until another opportune time. And you can understand that this isn't over. Not at all. Satan is going to keep the outside pressure on. Now, Jesus, being God incarnate, is different than you in this just one aspect. He doesn't have a sinful nature. All of his temptation comes from the outside. In that sense, he's a lot like Adam and Eve. They did not initially have a sinful nature. All their temptation came from the outside. And from the outside, it would come for Jesus... The rest of his life. And then, especially, you got to imagine on the days of his passion and his suffering on the cross, the temptations were pretty big. A lot of the ugliness of that week isn't from the hand of God, it is from the hand of Satan. Wanting Jesus to quit, wanting him to disobey in the end as we know as God knew Jesus would win he would carry out that phase to its end and and that is a very important phase now Satan can have no other future but, but to be eternally destroyed and everybody who's followed him both human and angelic It was at that point because Satan had kind of lost the leverage of the law that he could be deposed from heaven and was. And so you have no more conversations like you had with Job. Now he's stuck here, which is, I would say, a little disappointing for me. I was kind of hoping he would be stuck somewhere else. But he is stuck here. And he continues what's left of the fight, a consolation prize for him. Now, this this dealing with Jesus does show you something about God. All along, I am sure both the Father and even Jesus incarnate could have defeated Satan with lightning bolts from the fingertips and casting him off into some dark, corner of creation that he could have no intersection with humanity. That was always in their ability. But God is very much a being who will stick by what is written. He will not compromise this not for any reason. He'll find a way to fulfill it and that's why you got the strange method of our salvation with Jesus dying on the cross. Now, the other battle, the battle within the battle, the battle that you are directly involved with, this is now Satan against you, cherubim against just all normal, sinful human being. Once again, a very mismatched battle. Uh, In hand-to-hand combat, you're going to lose. In the kind of fighting that, that Satan does, are you always going to lose? And the answer is no, not always. What kind of fight is this? What is the goal of it? Jesus has redeemed me. Satan can't just take that away. What's the goal? of coming after me, what's the goal of coming after you? First of all, let me qualify coming after. Satan's not God. He's a cherubim. And I don't think one of the qualities of being a cherubim is omnipresence. See, you know those little cartoons where you got an angel on your shoulder over here and you got Satan on your shoulder over there, and they're both talking in your head. I don't think that's real. You have your sinful nature; that primarily is your problem. What Satan can do, though, is influence the world, kind of get it cascading through people to cascade to you. That's where his influence from the outside comes from. So beware of those kind of outside forces. But what's he trying to do? One, damage your usefulness. You're here for a purpose. You're here to do the work of the kingdom of God. That's what you're here for. If he can get you to underperform... Or maybe not perform at all. That is a win for Satan. He'll try that. Um, I didn't put these in order of importance. So let's go to four. To just plain displease God. He is the kind of being that, you know, if he can just be an irritant, he's happy with that. So irritant it is if he can cause you to be irritating or disappointing. That's a win for him. But the two, if you're looking at the outline, two and three, both related, are are much more serious things. Satan has no power to to pull you out of the hand of God. God's too powerful for that. He has to get you to abandon the grace that's been given to you. And you think, what kind of knucklehead would do that? Well, apparently, a lot of them. Because it happens to people all the time. So he tries to undermine your faith, to cause you to abandon Christ. And the, probably the main way that this happens is through unrepentance. It is to tempt you to sin. And then to get you to rationalize that sin. And to say it's normal. Everybody does it. Yes. Everybody does it. That is sort of the point. And everybody's not supposed to do it. So beware of that kind of, of reasoning. Look to the Word of God to see what is from God, what is not, what is sin, what is not. And then the other way sort of similar to... His second attack with Jesus is to, to undermine the truth of the gospel in some way that actually disarms it. You can see that in the book of Galatians, how he just sort of added what seemed like you know a reasonable compromise with the Old Testament faith. Add circumcision onto grace. How big a deal is that? And Paul says it's such a big deal that you have separated yourself from Christ. So, mucking around with the gospel to make it not a gift, to make it something you work for, that seems like a reasonable soft spot to attack. And that is what Satan does. So, any sort of temptation at its minimum to undermine your usefulness or to tick God off, that's the start. Anything that you can take further to the point where it is now an unrepentant sin of yours and you cross the line and fall from grace or, or, or change the gospel, that is how he's going to pick on you most likely. So what strategies does he employ here? Once again, there's one obvious one. Appeal to your sinful nature. Everybody's sinful nature is slightly different than everybody else's. You have things that perhaps tempt you the most. And that's probably true of a lot of other people, but it's not true of every other person. So pick on those things where you are the weakest make sure you get the right kind of information and the right kind of input to to knock you down his other strategy his next strategy would be to exploit the weakness of your faith god gave you a connection with him and and that connection is is starts weak and can grow stronger. Now, why is it the way it is? It's because of you. It's because of you and your sinful nature that their initial connection was the way it was, and it is because of you either feeding it or not feeding it that it is growing bigger or not so big. And I think it's a useful analogy to think of your faith as being like a circle, It's either a little circle or it's a bigger circle. Jesus does sort of the same thing with talking about your faith the size of a mustard seed. But seeing, I don't know what mustard seed looks like, that's not a helpful analogy to me that much. So if your faith is small or if it is challenged at any given moment, that's a good time to kick it in. And I think it's probably the reason why life challenges come in groups. The first one may have nothing to do with Satan at all, but it started to make you weak, and he saw that it would make you weak, so he has the ability to cause other things to kick in number two or number three in order to knock you out. And then he will also pick, and this is closely related, on your spiritual immaturity, your lack of discipline. Do you gather strength from God in the ways that he's provided for you to gather strength? All toward the goals that we mentioned before. So, does that mean that you will lose every time Now, if that's the case, we would all fall away from faith and be done. Jesus' battle on the cross would mean nothing. No, we will win. We can win most all the time. First and foremost, understand what you are fighting for. You are fighting for your life purpose, you are fighting to please the Lord your God. You are fighting for your own preservation in faith. That's why you fight. And the good news is, you are not just a human fighting against a corrupt cherubim. You're a human being who's connected to Jesus himself. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You fight with spiritual weapons you're really much stronger than you think. You're not just limited to your humanity. So you can rebuff Satan and you can see his attacks coming and, and you can push them off and win. And the majority of people, through the course of their life, win the big fight anyway. Now, I say the big fight You look at the outline, it says, this is not like guarding Michael Jordan, all right? If you're in basketball, and I'm assuming most people remember who Michael Jordan was, you can fill in any other basketball player that's a a big star. If you want to be against LeBron, fine. Giannis, go ahead. It's not like guarding them. In a game, those players are going to score. You're not going to shut them out unless you injure them, right? They're going to score some. But if you're the defender, and you hold one of them who averages 30 points a game to scoring 12 points that game, who won? Well, you did as an individual. And if your team wins, you win no matter what they did. The point here is this. Because you have a sinful nature I think you can count on I know you can count on failing against temptation quite frequently that's not a reason to just throw up your hands and fail alright that's just an acknowledgement that most likely you're going to have a few points scored against you in this battle the idea is not to be grossly scored against. And Jesus gives us a recourse. We don't want our recourse to be our first choice. Our first choice is winning the battle against Satan. Our recourse is the confession of our sins and Jesus' forgiveness. It is reliance on the gospel It is knowing that you're saved only by Jesus Christ. It is having confidence that you are saved by Jesus Christ. And Satan can't take that away from you. So God set this whole battle up, this battle for good, this battle for you, knowing your limitations. That said, we have a battle to fight, and day to day we can bring glory to God. We can bring good to this world, or or we can be just like it and fail. Look to Jesus's temptation. Look how he fought. May it be an aspiration to inspiration to you that you aspire to be like Jesus. That you aspire to win